My name is Beatrice Setnik. I am the Chief Scientific Officer at Alta Sciences and an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto, Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology. I am joined today with my colleague, Dr. Deborah Kelsch, who is a psychiatrist and principal investigator at Alta Sciences. Dr. Kelsch oversees the many clinical human abuse potential and substance abuse trials that we conduct here at Alta Sciences. We would like to welcome you to our podcast series titled The Many Faces of Recreational Drug Use, a series of candid interviews of personal drug use histories, which will include a collection of conversations and with volunteers who abuse drugs sporadically for recreational purposes and those that are struggling with the more severe form of substance use disorder. Our first interview today is with a female aged 46 who is opioid dependent. We will follow the interview with a brief commentary and discussion. We hope you enjoy today's podcast and will now begin. You wouldn't mind stating uh, your sex and age for the record. Um, female and I'm 46. Uh, so if you can tell us a little bit about your history when you first started using or experimenting with drugs for recreational purposes, how old you were and how that um, kind of evolved over time. Well, first I started off, I was working this job and I had fell and hurt my back. Mm-hmm. And the doctor had prescribed me some oxycodone, which I was on that for maybe a year. Mm-hmm. And then I was taken off of it. So then I just started like feeling like, okay, I needed to take it. Mm-hmm. Like my body felt like it was maybe craving it. Mm-hmm. So I started like finding different people to buy it from like off the street. Mm-hmm. And this probably maybe was like in 2007 when 2008 when I first started taking them like but when I when I was first prescribed and when I actually mm-hmm. first started it taking them on my own and just buying different drugs like that um probably 2000 I would say 10 2010 Yes. Okay. So we were, you just had um, mentioned that you started at 10, 10 milligrams and you got to about 15 milligrams uh, into the year. So it, it's just had a, just a slight increase. And you mm-hmm. were taking it that, for that whole year, you were just taking them orally, correct? Yes. And then um, after you kind of reinitiated your um, using opioids, did you go back to using oxycodone at that point? Or did you try other types of opioids? Oh, I was taking um, um, Dilaudin, um, hydrocodone, pretty much whatever I could get my hands on in a in the in a pain pill, morphine. Yeah, I was trying a little bit of everything. So at that point, were you taking it more for the 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 good feelings that it gave you, or more yes. for pain relief, or, no. or both? At that at that time. It was more like a the feeling I was getting because uh, I was younger, my back wasn't that bad, you know, and so, you know, it was just, it was more the feeling I was getting. I felt like I was able to get up and move around. I felt like mm-hmm. I was able to get up and do some things just like now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And were you taking them uh, now, since you, you started taking them again, did you are you taking them mostly orally? Are you taking them by other routes of administration? How no, do I don't. Them? I don't snort or do anything like that. Mm-hmm. I just take them by mouth. By mouth, okay. Mm-hmm. And do you uh, know approximately what kind of dosage levels you're taking of, of like oxycodone and hydrocodone? On a know? daily, mm-hmm. um, maybe sixty to eighty, maybe milligrams. If I take, you know, if I have some, maybe sixty milligrams a day, maybe mm-hmm. maybe and eighty. Then- Ah, okay, and that would be of oxycodone or hydrocodone? Uh, oxycodone. Oxycodone, okay. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I've taken fentanyl. I've taken, you know, had the fentanyl and all that, mm-hmm. you know, Dilaudin. Uh, my mm-hmm. preference would be the oxycodone. So out of all of them, your go-to, your favorite is oxycodone? Yes. And so what is it about oxycodone that you prefer compared to, say, hydrocodone or fentanyl or some of the other opioids that you've tried? <clears throat> 
Well, as far as the oxycodone, I mean, the hydrocodone, it, it sort of makes me, you know, nauseated. Ah. The fentanyl, the um, dilatin, the morphine makes me tired. Mm-hmm. Um, with the oxycodone, I don't get sick. I don't feel tired. I'm still able to function. Mm-hmm. Normal function mm-hmm. for me mm-hmm. anyway. And then if you uh, miss a dose or you stop taking it, do you experience withdrawal symptoms? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you're um, seeking, you're usually taking them on a daily basis then? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, at this point, uh, so your doses are about 60 to 80. You have a preference for oxycodone. So these are all, are you still getting this through a prescription at this point? Oh, or is it mostly no. you're buying them? No, I have not gotten prescription in years. Uh, this is money that I pay out of pocket off the street to buy pills. Ah, uh, and um, have you? Do you uh, have you experimented with any other drugs other than opioids? Um, I've used some. Um, no, no, absolutely not. I haven't tried any marijuana. I maybe smoked marijuana back when a teenager, but mm-hmm. no, not since I've been an adult. No, and that's mm-hmm. something I maybe just tried with some friends or whatever. But no, nothing other than opioids. Mm-hmm. And are there anything other than the opioids that help you? For example, if you start feeling withdrawal, can you kind of describe how that how that withdrawal feels when you go through oh, it. Oh gosh, the, with with the withdrawal, I start getting chest pains. I start getting um, like it feel like I have bad body aches. Um, my eyes water really bad. Um, I start having diarrhea. Um, get I get really nauseated. I can't eat. Oh, it's it's, it's bad. It's really bad. And how often, how quickly does do you start to experience those symptoms after, your, say, your last dose of, of oxycodone, for example? Okay, so if I haven't taken anything, if I took something last night, say if I haven't taken, okay, say I took something last night, if I wake up in the morning, mm-hmm. I'm going to feel achy. I'm going to feel, you know, headaches and, you know, sick. And if it's maybe going into noon, I'll be in a full withdrawal. It doesn't take mm-hmm. long at all. Mm-hmm. It doesn't so, take long. So do you end up taking any other um, remedies to help you through the withdrawal or is it the, I have, the only thing? Mm-hmm. I have tried um, something called a Kratom. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've reached, I researched it and it was like for, you know, something you can take for opiate withdrawals. Mm-hmm. I did take some Kratom for a while. I tried to do that. Uh, along with the opiates, of course, but uh, the kratom I know will make me really sick if I don't eat like a full meal with that. Uh, <laughs> and I just it, it doesn't it just doesn't sit right. But if I don't have any anything else to take, I will have to go get something like that. So and just mm-hmm. deal with it. Mm-hmm. So how how effective? How do you feel if you take it on a full meal? Granted, you you don't feel very well if you're not on a full meal. But if you take the kratom on a full meal, mm-hmm. uh, how does the kratom feel? And how uh, helpful is it with the withdrawal symptoms? It does help. It does help. But I think my mind is still telling me, hey, you need a pain. You need an actual. You know, you need a hydro you need an oxy or something but like Mm -hmm. I said if I can't find anything for some days I have to just deal with it and just make myself you know take it I think it's a lot of like a friend of mine was telling me it's kind of like a mind over matter thing I'm telling Mm -hmm. I'm still telling myself I need this even though the kratom does work some Mm -hmm. for me but I still feel like I need the opiate and so what usually causes more of a craving is it when, if you're craving the opioid is it more mm-hmm. because you're wanting to address the withdrawal or is it more for the feeling that you get from the more opioid to address the withdrawals mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's really the the so the opioid would be you would find it more effective at the withdrawals than the kratom then absolutely mm-hmm. yes okay. mm-hmm. How long, when you take the kratom, how long does it take before you start to notice uh, an improvement in the, in the symptoms? About a good hour. Ah, uh, so you're longer than you would with an opioid. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, 
that is that is difficult. So it's um, have you ever had situations where uh, you've taken too much or you've, you've overdosed on on opioids? Um, I would say yes, because of a feeling that I've had where I have think I have maybe taken too much and I got kind of sweaty and just felt different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it never required hospitalization that you were able no. to come out of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And when you were uh, when you've tried fentanyl, because uh, you, you mentioned oxycodone is, is your preferred opioid. Mm -hmm. um, how was the how did it compare to fentanyl when you had tried fentanyl in the past? Um, we had some patches for mm -hmm. somebody I know had patches and I tried the patch. It, um, of course, you know, putting on a whole patch, I cut it in half put it on and it maybe lasted a couple of days for me. Uh -huh. And it was the feeling, uh, how was the feeling? It, that wasn't you got from the, it? It, it wasn't the same upbeat feeling like I would feel if I took the oxycodone, I just felt, but mm -hmm. I still was able to work and, you mm -hmm. know, uh, be able to do things around the house or whatever. Uh, and so is that the only time you've tried fentanyl or have you done it in, in more oh, occasions? Oh, I've tried, I've tried mm -hmm. it. I've tried it several times many a times yeah and every time was it a patch or did you ever take it orally it was always a patch okay mm -hmm. okay and um the uh so the um have you tried have you ever gone through a period where you've gone through um uh, rehabilitation or tried to get off the opioids i came i came here in september last year mm -hmm and try some study they had to, with the opiates. And mm -hmm. I was taken, uh, they were giving us doses of Suboxone, which I've never had before. And I could tell a difference while I was here, but when I left here, it was a totally different situation. And I did try to reach out to some, um, you know, peop the, the clinics, the Suboxone clinics or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, it just didn't work out. I guess my mind, I'm, you know, I had in my mind, I was going to do one thing. And then when I was talking to the people about, you know, doing the, you know, coming to the, doing the Suboxone cases, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting so tongue tied, doing That's the okay. Suboxone um, clinics here in Kansas City. Um, I guess it was just so much I had to do. I just gave up on it. Ah, so how did you feel when you were in the clinic and you were getting the Suboxone? Did you mm -hmm. find it helpful for the withdrawal? How did you, how, what was your experience like with it while you were at the clinic versus, you know, when you left? When I was here, I felt like the first, oh my gosh, the first week, week and a half was hard for me. I mean, mm -hmm. I was walking around sick. I couldn't hardly do anything, but couldn't even get in the shower hardly. But I felt after like the second week, it, I felt, I felt fine. I mean, it was helping me. My skin had cleared up. I, I mean, I just felt, you know, like a whole different person as I was on it, going through it. And then being here, what, three weeks? Oh, it really had, I felt, you know, something different. I could mm -hmm. even tell the look, the way in my appearance, mm -hmm. but, you know, it just, you know, like I said, when I, get out something else totally different happened even people just see me when I came when I came home they were like oh you look you look good you know you you know it, it just it my skin was clear like I said and it, mm -hmm. I just felt healthier I felt you know but no it just didn't and my intentions were to try to get with someone about the suboxone when I left but like I said it didn't happen so what what happened if you if you don't mind us me asking what happened after you left that that you ended up not continuing with the suboxone? Well, I called. I was calling different places. Um, some places couldn't get me in. Some place, and then it was kind of frustrating because, like at this time now, I'm I'm out. Mm -hmm. I've been out. I haven't had any you know any opiates. I haven't had anything to take. I'm calling these people. I'm like, okay, they're not, these people are not open. I call another place They, you know, you have to come in and fill out these papers and fill out a lot of work before we can even prescribe you anything, or you have to bring $300 or, you know, it was just, 
and then I, I just gave up and then I just went and bought some pills. Uh, so it was, it was kind of difficult to get access to from, yes, yes. Say. uh, and have you, have you ever tried methadone? No, I haven't. No, no. Is it, uh, I don't how accessible, I guess Suboxone sounds like it's kind of a little bit more challenging to, to get, uh, to obtain compared to, to methadone, perhaps. I don't, I don't know how the, mm -hmm. it's in the Kansas area. Mm-hmm. DC the uh, but the suboxone uh, when you were taking it uh, did you have side effects from the medication itself? Um, a little constipation. That's about uh -huh. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so about it's, it. So standard from the uh, thing. Did it still give you the um, kind of the opioid effect, like the pleasant effects of the opioid, or is it more? Um, it was. It just made me feel like a normal human being. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't feel like I was on a a pain pill. I didn't feel like, I just felt like mm -hmm. I was okay. I didn't, mm -hmm. you know, like I didn't need it, but then, Hey, when it was time to dose that next morning, Oh, I was waiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it sounded like it, in the first week and a half, you mentioned it was, it was pretty rough oh, uh, it was. kind of stabilizing on the suboxone. And then uh, yes. by the third week, you, you, you felt really much better. Yes. Um, so the, the, the withdrawal sort of took about a week and a half to, to kind of yes. get over the withdrawal symptoms. Yes. Okay. And then, and then you, you felt really um, kind of past that. Yes. Well, that's uh, well, that's good that, that, uh, that intervention helped. That's, yes. that's good to know. Welcome to our first dis discussion break. Uh, so this was a very interesting uh, start to the interview. And we see from the onset that um, this particular um, volunteer had a really a started off opioids with a prescription for pain, which is such a common uh, factor in how opioid addiction starts uh, with a legitimate pain prescription that goes awry. Um, it was interesting that she's been using it for so many years, but uh, has very much maintained the discipline of oral use over that time, which is not always the case with, with some of our um, addicted individuals who are using opioids. Uh, Dr. Kelsch, uh, is this common? You, you've worked with a lot of uh, opioid dependent subjects that have come into our clinic. Uh, have you seen also that the commonality of starting with a pres legitimate prescription as, as a starting point for their addiction? Yeah, that tends to be very common, especially in someone like this, you know, just a average lady who had a back in injury and just became probably was overprescribed the medications to begin with and then becomes used to them and dependent on them. Um, and we see people who stay on the oral, you know, it, it does happen, um, especially if they have a good access to it on the street and they're not, and they can afford it and they're not forced to try something cheaper like heroin. Um, but yeah, she's pretty disciplined. She's sort of a high, kind of a high functioning. I think if I recall her, she also even worked. So um, she was able to maintain a fairly normal appearing life um, despite this. Which is unusual as well, because there um, is that something that you typically see is sort of the functioning opioid addict that is able to to sort of control their drug use. I suppose it also is highly dependent on mm -hmm. being able to access it or have around the clock opioid on board and not go into withdrawals during the day. Sometimes, especially the older individuals who have been doing this for years and years, they've just sort of learned how to be just to kind of manage it chronically um, without really escalating the dose too much and um, but just definitely requiring it every day and kind of knowing exactly what they need to to feel good. And, you know, they just, and sometimes they don't have a lot of motivation to stop it because they've tried and they, they feel worse and they feel like this is just something they need in order to just feel normal. And they've kind of managed it that way for years. Yeah, I, I think it's always the sad part of addiction is that the the fun of taking the the opioid has long passed, mm -hmm. and they're really taking it just to feel normal and not feel bad. I mean, it's it just it's just such a perpetual cycle 
uh, that really, uh, it, it's sort of sad that the, the, the effect to spend that much money just to end up feeling normal mm -hmm. and functioning. Um, one of the interesting things I think she also pointed out uh, was her preference for oxycodone and uh, her discussion about other types of opioids and the side effects they cause. So if you recall, she mentioned that the hydrocodone causes her, uh, she has more nausea from hydrocodone. Uh, the morphine causes her more sleepiness. So she really has that preference for oxycodone. Mm -hmm. And we see that often reported as well in the literature. So it's very consistent with what other users report. Uh, but I think it's an interesting segue to say that um, certainly the, the opioids are different and the perception of oxycodone uh, as a drug of choice is, is really quite prevalent. And it was interesting that even the fentanyl was not as enticing uh, given its potency compared to the oxycodone. Is that something that you've also encountered with the subjects that you've uh, had crossed uh, in the studies in the past? Yeah, they definitely usually have a drug of choice, you know, that their go-to drug would be a certain, you know, oxy or you know, some people prefer the hydrocodone or, um, you know, just, just depends. But the problems now is that you're, they're no longer, many people are getting the pharmaceutical oxycodone. So they think they're buying oxycodone, but it's actually adulterated mm -hmm. with something else. And so I think we discussed in a previous podcast as someone who thought she was on oxycodone, tested negative for opioids at check-in. And we found out that she was actually on fentanyl. She was very surprised when that's what she was actually getting. And then I think it creates a whole nother issue though. So those people who've been maintaining fairly well on their kind of pharmaceutical oxycodone are now getting something else and it's um, aggravating the condition and maybe they get more intense withdrawal. So it's, I think that's become more of a problem recently. Mm -hmm. It is, and the uh, interesting point she mentioned about the kratom uh, as a tool or mechanism of controlling the withdrawal symptoms, which doesn't sound like it would be a complete substitute for opioids, but uh, is used to some degree to help mitigate the withdrawal if there is nothing else available in terms of opioids. Are you seeing a lot of kratom use in, in the clinic and in terms of subjects reporting the use of kratom, particularly, I guess, in our dependent populations that may be using it for um, as a uh, mechanism for dealing with withdrawal symptoms? Yeah, I think if we ask people, they'll say that they've tried it because it's easily obtainable. I mean, I think you can just go to a vape shop or whatever and pick it up. Um, but we've just added that we had, it used to be kind of other in our other category. So when people came in to fill out their drug history, so now we've actually put that word Kratom in there just to see if we've gotten more um, response. But um, as far as the recreational drug users, we, have, we haven't had anybody yet report using it. So I think it is more in the dependent population as they're just hearing that this may help mitigate withdrawal symptoms and they give it a try if there's nothing else um, that they can get, but it's never, it's not the answer. Mm -hmm. It was interesting because she did mention that she was taking it with food. If she doesn't take the Kratom with food, uh, she gets, uh, it doesn't sit well with her. Uh, mm -hmm. So, and uh, I happen to, we've been researching a little bit about Kratom, as you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I happen to find some <laughs> in a local vape shop. And, and you're right. I mean, it's, it's very, very accessible. And I have some here. This is a I bought uh, at a, a local vape shop and, and they've got walls and walls of Kratom. And uh, this one in particular has 80 capsules uh, and it was $20. So you can mm -hmm. find it fairly affordable. It doesn't give you any information about the weight or dose or anything like that, which is, which is alarming. Uh, so people tend to experiment with it, I guess, because you'd, you'd have to kind of figure out what a dosing paradigm might look like. Uh, mm -hmm. But it was noteworthy that she, she takes it with, uh, with food. And um, I think we'll probably investigate further into some of these doses because it has a, a lot of varied effects at low doses. It's known to be more of a stimulant at those higher doses. It's, it has uh, more of an opioid-like, or it's uh, at least reported to have more of an opioid-like effect. But it was interesting that they're, they're using that for the, for the withdrawal management. Um, and it was also the, the other um, component to it was the, the effectiveness of the Suboxone while she was in the clinical study. And it seemed that it had such a, a, a pronounced benefit for her 
while she was in the study. And, and you were the investigator in that study. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you must notice quite a change <laughs> over yeah. the duration of the studies. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of describe to us uh, some of the observations you have when, you, when you're giving these subjects that come in Suboxone and, and how, that, uh, how they usually react to the Suboxone? Yeah, so they usually, it usually takes less than a week and a half for them um, to at least their physical symptoms to improve. Um, if I recall, she didn't have a ton of physical symptoms, um, but she definitely met criteria to be inducted into it. I think for that study, you had to have at least a five on your um, clinical opiate withdrawal scale. Um, but after that, every, you know, she was scoring zeros or ones, but I think what they do have is the mental part of it. They're still dreaming about using it. They're still craving it. Um, and so if we, we didn't do it in that study, but if we had done sort of a craving scale, um, that probably would have still been high, um, but actually the physical symptoms definitely improve. Um, and yeah, she's bright. I mean, her skin, for whatever reason, she just looks, she looked brighter and um, out of bed. I mean, people were kind of in bed at that time because of well, I don't remember if COVID was going on during that study, but um, but yeah, just they look good. They all do at the end of the, especially if it's a three week, four week study by the end. You know, as long as we've titrated it to a efficacy, then they feel good, look good, and just feel like they're ready for a new start. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so, and that, that's quite promising. It's, it's really the, the, I guess, the reality of then um, under a supervised setting, it's, it's when they're being uh, taken care of and, and uh, in compliant mode because they're working with a staff within a confines of a study clinic, it's, it's probably easier to motivate them to stick with the program. Um, but right. then we oftentimes see that some individuals will go on to uh, be very motivated to continue using Suboxone and some might find um, reasons for perhaps uh, not continuing with it. Um, I, I, and I think we encountered this also with the, the first subject we interviewed uh, a, a while back where um, there was a cost involved in obtaining the Suboxone that was perceived by the subjects as being high. However, when you're comparing it to what they're spending on the streets for oxycodone, uh, it's, it's really a small fraction of what they are spending day to day. Mm -hmm. I mean, this lady mentioned uh, she's ha having between 60 and 80 milligrams a day. Uh, it's running and, and we'll see later in the interview that she's paying for about a dollar a milligram for oxycodone on the streets. Mm -hmm. So it, it gets, it adds up quite quickly if you're spending um, three to $400 a week on the opioid then the Suboxone at 300 may not necessarily be that much of a differential depending on the, the supply. Uh, but we'll continue with the interview. And were there any other thoughts that you had before we move on and continue with the, the rest of the interview? No, just that it would probably be nice to have Kratom, you know, a drug screen that would pick that up, you know, because I imagine there's more people on it that just don't admit it. Some people are afraid to tell us what they're taking because they think it will disqualify them from participation in the study, but I don't think our drug screen picks up Kratom. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think most of them do. Yeah. This is one of those drugs that uh, sort of f falls under the radar for the most part. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, and, and the wide availability of it, I think if you can pick it up so easily and at a fairly cheap price, um, it may be cropping up more often than we, than we think. All mm -hmm. right, so let's continue. Thank you, Dr. Kelch. We'll continue mm -hmm. with the interview part two. Um, so the, on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, if you're using daily, how does your typical day work around opioid use? Like how often uh, do you have to typically use in a 24-hour in period? Probably every three to four, maybe hours, maybe. It just depends mm -hmm. on the dose. Mm -hmm. But I know as soon as I wake up, that's the first thing I do. Ah, so you take one as soon as you get up in the morning. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then during the day, do you have to, to boost up the doses or to get I might take I might take more, um, depending on how many I have bought that day. Mm -hmm. I might take more when I'm working. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And you're taking it all orally. So are you taking, are you trying to get more extended release 
tablets or are you just taking the the regular kind of generic ones just the regular regular whatever i can get my hands on mm -hmm. really it could be, i have it i bought extended release i bought mm -hmm. you know regular i bought the generic you know whatever i can get <laughs> is it easy to to access do you have a lot of choice in the type of opioid that you get or do you have a preference for an extended versus like an immediate release immediate release Ah, okay. So, and, and why is that? Because it's a faster onset or why do you have yes, a preference for that? Because it helps with the, it'll take away those, those feelings that I get when I'm not taking the opiate or when I feel like I need one uh -huh. or two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they, the effect lasts you how long? Just a few hours? Yes. And then it, you need to address the withdrawal after that? Sometimes it, it like I said, it depends on the dose. It might last mm -hmm. maybe four or five hours. Ah, uh -huh, I see. Okay. If it's a stronger dose, like if it's something like a 30 milligram, I could take that and feel okay. Mm -hmm. And maybe like five hours, I might need to take something else or four hours maybe. But that's, uh -huh. that's still a mm -hmm. short period of time to be taking all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then how, how expensive is it to get it if, if you're purchasing it? Oh, it's, uh, it's, exp oh, it's expensive. <laughs> so yeah. how much, what kind of um, quantities Money. are you getting or okay. in, in terms of how much? So let me see. So if I get 10, maybe that's a hundred dollars. It depends mm -hmm. if those are 10 milligrams because usually they charge by the milligram. Uh -huh. um, I might be spending a uh, hundred dollars every other day every other day and that mm -hmm. gets you how many milligrams if you're if you're 10 spending... milligrams 10 pills ten hundred dollars okay so it's almost like a dollar a milligram right right okay okay and is it uh are you able to find uh the the types that you want or are you switching from oxycodone to other types I, of opioids I, I switch to what i can find mm -hmm. um also i mean there's some generic 30 milligram oxycodone pills going around here, which I had ended up buying some and didn't know it when I came in here in September. Mm -hmm. And um, the doctor told me that uh, I had something in my system and I was like, she was like, yeah, you probably bought some, you know, fake oxycodone. And then I'm Googling, I'm looking at it. Yeah, they're out here. I think they have mm -hmm. a lot of some of everything in them. Yeah, because it's um, the yeah because it's it's sometimes hard to know what that what's in those tablets, right? right? Yeah. Some everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the um, and and your experience in the clinical trial. So you had a positive experience. Uh, I the, did. I really and, did. And that's that's great. Great, really great to hear. Uh, they asked, uh, they, they did a lot of questionnaires around the, uh, I imagine they did some questions around the withdrawal symptoms and that type of thing. Um, did they accurately, did the questionnaires accurately describe how you felt in terms of the withdrawal symptoms? Did they, were they, were there symptoms on there that you felt perhaps that weren't on the questionnaire, for example? Yeah, my, well, I don't know if this one was on there, but my, my whole attitude will change. Like, um, I'll get a little bit more, like, closed off to myself. I don't want to talk to anybody because I'm afraid what I might say or be mean or something like that. So, yeah, I usually just shut down. Then uh, that's part of what you go through when you're going into the withdrawal syndrome. Yes. And I think you also mentioned that you had um, sort of um, uh, your eyes watered as well. You have oh, yes. eyes water and, and you have uh, chest pains when you um, when you go through withdrawal. Yeah, uh, like a, it's like a bad it's like an anxiety, but it's like mm -hmm. an anxiety that hurts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh -huh. And you have uh, and, and you've mentioned also you had the nausea. So you have some of the, the oh, yes. GI kind of complications. Oh, yes. Yeah, so it's, uh, it, yeah, they, they do tend to, um, but the, the, I think one of the questionnaires, they don't really get into the, the mood changes, right? The, the mm -hmm. attitude. So that may be something that we, we might look at in the future. Oh, uh, atti attitude is a big, is a big factor and it. And it has a lot to do with it too. So in, in what kind of settings do you prefer just to, to, to take the opioids? Do you do that with, uh, with friends that also are using, or you just prefer to be alone when you, when you use? I take them and I go to work. I work every day. I take them at home. 
uh, yeah, I, I really don't have any friends that that I know that uh, pop pills like I do. <laughs> okay, and um, it's has just something mm -hmm. I got caught up in, and I just mm -hmm. don't, you know, I'm just it's like right now, it's just like this is my life right now. Mm -hmm. I'm just like a functioning addict. I can get up and go to work. As long as I have them, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we've heard that from from quite a few people that are kind of use, utilizing them to, to be able to get through the day, right? Just to function from day to day. Have you found that this whole COVID situation and the kind of the lockdowns and everything we've been going through, has that changed the way that you've been using uh, opioids in any way? Yeah, it's been kind of depressing. So mm -hmm. I may have been using a little bit more. More, more than I think. Have they been more difficult to find uh, during the COVID time or, or is it the same access that you have? Probably about the same for mm -hmm. me. Well, I don't know if there's uh -huh. anything else that you wanted to share about your kind of experience with, with opioids or if there's anything else that you wanted to add. I just know before I started taking pills, um, and like I said, they are very addictive, mm -hmm. but for me, but once I started, before I started taking pills, I was, I mean, I could, I was fine. Like I didn't, I wasn't on anything. I wasn't, I, I don't drink, mm -hmm. I don't smoke um, drugs. I do smoke cigarettes now. And mm -hmm. I had, and that's another thing. I have started smoking cigarettes more since I've been on these opiates like this. And it, and I have been smoking more since I've been taking more opiates since the COVID. <laughs> ah, so prior to 2007, when you first um, had your injury and you were taking the opiates, you were a non-smoker up until that right. point? Right, okay. yes. But so I have, I, I like I said, I was smoking before COVID, mm -hmm. but since I've been taking more pills and since COVID, I've been mm -hmm. doing a little bit of smoking back to back, chain smoking, I catch myself buying a pack almost every day now. So uh, almost every day. But yeah, I have, that's another thing I've started smoking more cigarettes too. And that's something I wouldn't normally do. Uh, does it help you with any um, of the kind of symptoms or, or feeling uh, oh, controlling no. appetite oh, or anything no. like that? No. Oh, no. So just more oh. for, <laughs> it's just more for, for, for pleasure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, that is interesting. Uh, it is, uh, we oftentimes see um, people will smoke or engage in, in other types of things. Uh, but it is interesting because you, you started in 2007. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you weren't um, like a teenager when you started all of this, when this, mm -hmm. this, this started. Um, but you did mention that you did have a little bit of experimentation uh, mm -hmm. in high school, but... Oh, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Was it, uh, did you try different classes? Was it just THC or did you, just, had you had no. tried an opioid before that? Oh, or? no, mm -mm, mm -hmm. no. I come from my family's middle class. My parents, they worked and they, you know, took care of us and everything. And it was just, you know, I had everything I wanted growing up. It's just that, you know, being in high school, have some peer pressure and friends that, mm -hmm. oh, we're going to smoke a little weed. You want to try this? But that's probably around the only time because I haven't, since I've been an adult, I, I haven't smoked any marijuana pot, anything like that. But, uh, and then also, um, like I said, I, I was a smoker before this you know before this but a, a very light smoker you know mm -hmm. because I'm the type that don't want to be in the room with cigarette smoke and mm -hmm. smell you know have my hands and clothes smelling like cigarette smoke mm -hmm. but now I, like I said since COVID and everything and I'm taking more pills seem like I've been smoking a lot more yeah oh, that is uh, that's that is interesting but if mm -hmm. I don't have when I'm going through a withdrawal and I don't have a, something you know to take I'm not even going to want a cigarette. Uh -huh. So when you're when you're going through withdrawal, do you take anything um, uh, else to to kind of help manage it? No, uh, no. There isn't any kind of um, any other type of thing that helps you through it. No. Other than the opioid. That's it. Uh, and so, and, and so you don't even feel like smoking then during exactly. when you're going through withdrawal. No. It, uh, even even <laughs> turns you off smoking. Yes. Oh, that is interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's. Um, 
that is uh, uh and, and do you do you have uh do you drink coffee or do you have any other uh kind of i drink coke but like i said mm -hmm. if i don't have a if i don't have i'm going through that withdrawal i don't want a coke i don't want coffee i don't want a cigarette mm -hmm. i don't want anything but an opiate that's it to help me yeah. feel better like get rid over get over these withdrawals and then i feel like i can function Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly because um, th does the nausea really prevent you from kind of the appetite and that? Uh... Oh, it's the it's the body aches, it's the mm -hmm. irritability, it's the feel like my body's cramping up, like you're balling up a piece of paper. It's the headaches. It's just mm -hmm. the whole thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and. Um, when you were on the opiate, so you're uh, sorry to just go to back to one question. It's okay. Um, when you had the initial prescription for the oxycodone, mm -hmm. uh, you had taken it for a year. Had your pain? It might have been. It might have been a little bit over a year. Year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Had your pain been? Um, did you have that pain throughout, or did you have a pain no. for for some time, and then I you have... kind of just continued on the oxycodone? Yeah, I had the pain for some time. That pain had went away. I was able to manage the pain with, you know, different exercises. Mm -hmm. I had therapy. I had acupuncture. I had I had it all. So tinge unit. So, I mean, the pain was able, it was under control. It was mm -hmm. just my mind wasn't under control. <laughs> mm -hmm. And was there something that in your, in your life that kind of... Um precipitated like that um made you want the oxycodone more it was or was it just that the effects were so uh good that you just didn't want to yeah, you just I wanted to continue taking it yeah yeah that's what it was so when I you didn't have I didn't have any you know thing that happened and made me want to mm -hmm. take him or anything traumatizing mm -hmm. and you know even when I lost you know some close family, I didn't feel oh, like I needed to turn to the open. It was just, mm -hmm. it was just me. It was just me. Mm -hmm. So how would you describe, I mean, when you, when you take the oxycodone, or you take an opioid, mm. can you kind of describe the feeling that you get um, when you take them? Obviously the, the withdrawal symptoms that you're getting relief there, but how is it just generally, what's the feeling that you get when you take them? Well, now, since it's been so long, since mm -hmm. I've been on these opioids and taking them, mm -hmm. I feel like, okay, I took this oxycodone or I took this pain pill or this whatever. Now I can get up. Now I can take a shower. Now I'm ready to go to work. Now mm -hmm. I can cook. But if I don't have it, none of that stuff is getting done. I've been, it's been days I've, it's been, and not all the time because I still mm -hmm. wouldn't have my job and be good at what I do, but mm -hmm. it, it's been days where I'm being like, I can't find any pills and they're not going to be up. They're not going to get their prescription to six o'clock and I have to be at work at three. I'm going to have to call in. <laughs> uh, so it, it, from what you're describing, it kind of makes you feel normal or that yeah. you can function throughout the day. Right. So are you still, do you still feel the, the kind of the, the high or the euphoria from the opioids no. or was that something that you had? Oh, that before? was something maybe in the beginning, but no, mm -hmm. I don't feel a high. I just feel normal normal I feel like okay. I can mm -hmm. move I can do this like mm -hmm. I said it's been days I if this person's not going to get their pills till six and I have to be at work at two I'm calling in because I can't go do I can't do it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so that uh, it obviously has a an impact on your uh day-to-day oh, -day life I would say a, a huge impact and it's bad it's terrible <laughs> Uh, so now it's it's been going, I mean, if, if you started at 2007, you've been doing it continuously throughout that time? Or if, have you had intervals where you stopped and then restarted again? No, like when I started, it wasn't like this. It wasn't, oh, I'm going to spend $150 every other day or $300, $400 a week on pills. No, it wasn't like that. When I first started, it might have been a couple here and then maybe a week or two later mm -hmm. couple there you know but now as the time has went by it's just built up where it's more and more and more more and more mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so and and you've you've stuck with oral which is which is it's good it's a safe uh, safer route but we we speak to a lot of people that go on to intranasal or injection uh -huh. of, of opioids what's kind of held you back in, in just sticking with the oral route is it that you're getting enough of what you need from that yes I believe so and plus 
like I said, I don't know any, like I don't have any friends that I don't know anybody mm -hmm. that shoots up pills. So that's probably a good thing because that's something I would have snorting a pill. I don't know about that either. I don't, I, mm -hmm. you know, I, no, I just, I don't know anybody that do, does that. Like I don't, none of my friends or family does that. I'm, I'm probably the only one that takes pills and does this so I haven't been around anybody to show me or tell me how to do it that's do it. Mm -hmm. that's probably a big factor in it too because mm -hmm. I've heard when I was here I did hear some people saying oh well you know you shooting them up you get it higher faster well I'm glad I don't know them and I'm not around them because that's probably mm -hmm. something I don't want to start because I feel mm -hmm. like this is bad enough <laughs> and when you uh, have you if you've taken them orally do you have you ever chewed them or dissolved oh, yes. them or done anything oh yes like that? Oh, okay. oh yes now I'll do that in a heartbeat mm -hmm. chew them up quick <laughs> Uh -huh. in my and, mouth I've never put them in a cup and mixed them with anything but yeah I'll chew them up to try to get them in my system faster yeah mm -hmm. and so if you have an extended release have you have you encountered the oxycontin that has those kind of properties that make it harder to uh, crush or, or any of those types of formulations oh, that yeah. have been altered mm -hmm. so, so if you have one of those um, what do you do with it uh, take you, the whole thing just you take, take the, the whole thing, thing. so you yeah. don't bother chewing it or trying to grind it up or anything no. like that to swallow uh -uh. Mm -mm. Uh -huh. because those those they, when they made those pills not to be crushed or mm -hmm. anything they they did a good job so yeah I just take the whole thing mm -hmm. whole thing <laughs> yeah we have uh, we work with a lot of companies that are, are uh, developing these kinds of opioid and now stimulants mm -hmm. with properties to make them more difficult to, yeah. to crush or manipulate. Yeah. And um, it depends on how motivated somebody is. It's like, trying to break, it's like trying to break or chew up a tire. Yeah, so no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and how much, so for example, if because uh, we're always trying to also see what um, these drug companies could do to, to make these drugs safer or at least deter uh, kind of more movement to dangerous routes of administration, right? Because if you start injecting, there's obviously a lot more risk with those types of behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, if, if you had an oral tablet and it tasted really, really bad, if it was extremely bitter, would mm. that change your behavior? Would you have, would you prefer, would you, would it change uh, how you took it in any way? No. No. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't deter you. So if, if no. it, um, not if right it, now, no, if mm -hmm. it tasted bad, they all taste bad, but yeah, mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. No, I would probably just swallow it whole mm -hmm. and quickly <laughs> chase it with some Coke, some, with cola. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if they had, uh, so we had one, uh, manufacturer that put in, uh, dyes into their, into their tablets that would mm. turn your mouth all blue. <laughs> mm. Would that be something that he would find to be a deterrent or would you just swallow it quickly or swallow it? they've tried a lot of very very creative things um, oh trust me somebody <laughs> like me or somebody that pops pills on a regular you are always going to find a way to you know <laughs> uh -uh, to tablet, okay I'm just going to swallow it mm -hmm. you know whatever <laughs> yeah, if it's bitter I'm going to chase it with some orange juice or so yeah same thing mm -hmm. yeah and uh, so when when you're when you were taking the prescription, um, there's also um, kind of d dispensing devices. Since you've you, since you started off with a with a prescription, yeah. um, there are companies that are coming up with uh, these devices that dispense drugs uh, mm -hmm. and opioids, so that it's kind of programmed into your app and it'll dispense only what you're supposed to take at the time that you're supposed to oh, take it. Okay. Do you think that would have an impact if, if you had had something like that, say when you were first using opioids, do you foresee that that could have had an impact on how you were using that? And, and do you think that could have helped perhaps um, control the amount you, you were using uh, while, while you had the prescription? Um, it could have in a way, but like you can get I mean, like, I feel like if I, even with taking, maybe taking them for a week or two, I feel like if, if I mean, if that's what I was going to do, that's what I was going to do. Because the only thing is people mm. save them up. Like if you're just dispensing this amount, you're going to save, you can save them up for that day or the next day and then just take, you know, take them all 
at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless yeah. you're just going to sit right there in front of someone and they're going to watch you take them. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so would it would there have been something that, for example, your physician could have done to help you through that first year that might have made things turn out differently? Do you wish that, you know, they had done something or do you wish something could have happened, perhaps shorter prescription times or something, anything that you would have foreseen that would have changed kind of the outcome that you had? No, I just think he did everything he could and he was really Mm -hmm. trying to help me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, well, it's, um, it, it certainly is a journey and uh, it, it is, is uh, many, many people are in your situation where they start off with a, a prescription for pain and then, mm-hmm. um, you know, things kind of um, uh, evolve from from an initial prescription. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're trying to come up with ways to, uh, you know, maybe prevent it from happening to still give access to, yeah. to pain medication for those who people who need it, but actually need it, yeah. but to also do it in a way that's, um, that doesn't impose or present bigger risks, right, to those patients that might eventually um, take it further. Is there anything that um, you think would be helpful in identifying uh, people that might have a a tendency to uh, perhaps, you know, ask for more and more opioids, uh, even if they don't need them for a pain condition? I'm going to give you an example now I have a friend that was in a bad car accident that's clearly in a lot of pain now this person's been going to the doctor and the doctor just been prescribing him gabapentin to the part to the point where like he's having you know his heart problems blood pressure you know shooting up sky high because of the pain and still just being prescribed gabapentin Mm -hmm. which I have a patient that I the older lady, you know, that I take care of that is prescribed oxycodone for itchy feet. So I don't Mm -hmm. know. It's just the whole system is messed up if you ask me. (laughs) Yeah, they're giving it for kind of conditions that you might think that shouldn't be given for. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, so it is strange because they kind of um, and if you a lot of people, I feel like it's a lot of stereotype, you Mm -hmm. know, too and just you know we don't want to give this person some but we'll give this person some because they look like they wouldn't but you just you know I don't know (laughs) well I I think from from all the years that I've been doing this kind of research Mm -hmm. it's there's no way you can tell (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) exactly it's uh, (laughs) it it can hit anyone at any age exactly it's uh it doesn't have any biases in terms of that's um, so true addictive disorder so it's uh it's uh, it's cautionary for for anyone who's I guess exactly. who's exposed because we all have the potential to, uh, you know, get uh, caught into it uh, if if mm-hmm. it goes unchecked. But um, exactly. That, well, that's that's very very informative. I'm I'm really very thankful and grateful that you were able to join us today and share your thoughts oh. so candidly with us. Yeah, um, <laughs> I really appreciate it. I mean, uh, like I said, we've we've um, we encounter so many. We work with so many people that are that started off with the prescriptions and are trying to come up with safer ways of still being able to treat pain and conditions that require opioids, but do it in a way where it really reduces the risk for for longer term use. And I also wanted to add like, okay, so during this time, the doctor had me on the prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, If it wouldn't have been all of a sudden, I need to cut you off and not Mm -hmm. give you anymore because the FDA or whatever guidelines we're starting to have now I think if I would have been back then if I would have been maybe cut down and maybe weaned off a little you know instead of just Mm -hmm. okay no more just all of a sudden it might have turned out different yeah so that's what happened so that that's how you got off the the doctor said you know that the regulations have changed and I'm no longer prescribing so so they didn't do anything (laughs) oh goodness so they didn't do anything to address the fact that you had been on an open year you're probably physically dependent going into withdrawal they didn't know 
Wow, that's um, and well, at that's the time very... I had I had good insurance. I was with Blue mm-hmm. Cross. I was working for the state. I was mm-hmm. also on another insurance. So it wasn't that. It was just all of a sudden, here you go. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And I, I know you've been taking these for over a year, but there's nothing else I can do for you. So I feel like if I would have been maybe weaned down at that mm-hmm. time, like I said, this mm-hmm. was years ago. Mm-hmm. If I was going to wean down or you could have put me on, you know, maybe half or just cut, start cutting me off mm-hmm. a, down a little bit at a time, that probably would have helped. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very important. Instead, and I'm, I'm glad. No know. more. And then you're just on your own. So then I, you know, that's when everything just kind of got it start I started buying them over the counter I mean buying them from whoever I could get them from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. well that's very important uh, I think that that's you raise a really really important point because if if patients aren't helped to get off of them yeah. and it does require I mean you have to it, it usually requires a tapering regimen like you, you said have you know, me kind on of this, reduce you it. Have me on this addictive drug for over a year and now mm-hmm. it's like okay no <laughs> here mm-hmm. you go yeah mm-hmm. well I'm um yeah, that that's very that's very noteworthy. Thank you for for sharing that, and and really just thank you so much for your time. It's been it's been wonderful to to Same speak with here. you today, and yeah. I, I really thank you sincerely for for sharing your story with us today. Well, that was a very uh, touching interview, and I think mm-hmm. the the amount of difficulties uh, she's gone through are, are really quite evident in her story. And just the the kind of uh, lifestyle that uh, ensues when one in, an individual is addicted to opioids, having to take them around the clock and be out of pocket for so much money, trying to keep themselves maintained on an opioid dose in the end just to feel normal. Um, I think one of the striking things uh, about it was really the the handling of her um, take, being taken off the the prescription that she had and the uh, sudden withdrawal that she would have experienced by having her uh, prescription abruptly discontinued. And uh, perhaps that may be very good clinical pearls uh, for physicians and for uh, practitioners to slowly taper uh, subjects off opioids before discontinuing them entirely from them. Otherwise, uh, that feeling, that withdrawal feeling is, is such leads to such desperation that oftentimes they'll seek it from other avenues and on the streets, which as we know, and, and as you've seen, and uh, I think she referred to also the, the potentially the fentanyl that was in the in the tablets that she gets off the streets, um, they're laced with so many other dangerous substances that uh, that is really the the worst resort uh, in terms of sourcing these types of drugs. Now, Dr. Karras, what are your thoughts on the um, on the remainder of the interview, and uh, were there any salient points that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, you know, I agree that, I mean, back then, maybe they just thought you just need to get somebody off of it and just leave them on the on their own. But I think if you're a provider who's prescribing pain medicines, you just need to just maybe just assume everyone's going to be physiologically addicted to it and just normalize that condition and not make someone feel ashamed if they try to taper them off and they're not able to so that they're able to come in and you know, report that they're having difficulty. And, and I think you can prescribe buprenorphine for pain. You don't have to go through any kind of course to do that. It's per, and you could even substitute their pain medicine for the buprenorphine and help them get off of it. If it's, you know, if you're trying to do it that way, I know sometimes they would do that even with methadone, you could prescribe methadone for pain. Um, but I think sometimes these people, what happened is they got it from a surgeon or something that you just really never saw again, once you're, and then they were prescribed 80 tablets for one small yeah. surgery and then and then it became mm-hmm. difficult. So I'm sure these pain providers now with all this education are probably better at not getting people addicted, I, I hope. Um, yeah, that would that would be certainly the, the case. I think that the problem is, is that the tapering regimens are not always very clear when you pick up the prescribing information for a lot of these opioids, having concise uh, kind of uh, charts or methods for tapering regimens are not really clearly outlined for the most part for these. And I think that's, uh, most will do it intuitively based on experience, but it's uh, something that I think should be more accessible for 
generally for prescribing information so that patients also have a good understanding that they can't suddenly discontinue the drugs while they're on them. Otherwise, mm -hmm. they may end up with withdrawal. And in that way, they're also informed about the, the need for careful and slow tapering as they're coming off of these drugs. Um, but it was really uh, striking that this uh, problem, of course, occurred much later for her in life compared to the usual uh, kind of start in adolescence. Uh, she didn't really get that prescription until she was about 32 years old. And so this is really, um, uh, and, and didn't really have a, a you know, very slight experimentation in high school, but nothing um, abnormal in terms of uh, problematic drug use behaviors in her adolescent years. Uh, she was really quite, uh, uh, she didn't experiment very much. So this is really was the first segue into exposure to a drug with addictive properties and uh, really what's started to precipitate the um, addictive disorder, the abuse substance use disorder in her, which was uh, at the age of 32. So this is, uh, mm -hmm. I think it just illustrates how, uh, how, careful one needs to be when prescribing these types of medications um, because even with older patients or patients that are established adults and may not have had that um, drug use history in the past, the vulnerability in, in some, some patients to develop addiction uh, is, is there, uh, clearly is mm -hmm. there. And, um, you know, at one point, it used to be touted that it was a 1% I iatrogenic addiction rate, which we know is, 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 is not the case. And there's, there's more of that and the, the, the vulnerability to it is certainly there at any age. Uh, and I think that uh, in this particular example with this, um, uh, with this lady, she illustrates the, the fact that uh, it's not just a, a kind of an adolescent issue. So that's, I thought that was very, very striking. Um, the, the other, uh, the other uh, issue was, of course, the, the whole COVID situation and feeling more depressed and the, the changes in her behaviors during COVID with increasing opioid use and uh, subsequently also increasing smoking behavior, because uh, it sounds like she had a lot of um, discipline over smoking in the past, which uh, sort of exacerbated with the whole COVID situation as well. Um, so this is something I think, uh, because we're still in the midst of the COVID pandemic and, and people are still feeling depressed and there's a lot of mental health consequences, mm -hmm. this time, if any, there needs to be probably more diligence on examining patients and their risks to developing um, or exacerbating their uh, substance use behaviors. Right. Because one of the symptoms she reports when she withdraws is just this change in her mood. She just doesn't feel good, doesn't want to talk to anybody. And if she's getting a little bit of that just from COVID, she's going to mistake that for oh, maybe I just need a little more opioid to get shake this mood, even though it really has nothing to do with it. Yeah, just, you know, her age is what it illustrates. It's never too late for her to go down that slippery slope into something worse. So she's somebody who would have a really good prognosis if she would, you know, just maybe let her provider know and get on something because she just has to get around the wrong crowd or suddenly lose access to her pills. And, um, well, she'll like it if she starts shooting it up, it's, you know, then she, there it goes, it becomes a whole nother issue. So it's, it's too bad that she's just not getting some aggressive sort of medication assisted therapy because it works so well for her. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they come out with a lot of money after these studies and you know, easy to judge and say, oh, why don't they use that money to go? It's only $300, she just made 6,000, why can't she do that? But a lot of these people, by the time they do this study, they've had such a history of disappointing family members that they're using their money to help their kids or their grandkids or pay off some debt. So it's never really, even though it sounds like they, you know, they can use it for their own benefit. A lot of times they use the money and they give it away to family because they have guilt over their behaviors. So very, and that, yeah, that, yeah, that's an important point because I think, you know, it's easy to sit there and, and, and uh, oftentimes people will judge, will say, well, you know, if, if they felt so good, why, why didn't they just continue? You know, it just, it's intuitive. Some of us, and they know it's mm -hmm. intuitive too. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, she, she, she 
mentioned that you know she felt good but it was it was just circumstances that that led to a, a different outcome when they leave the clinic and i think the other part of it is the um the association with a lot of the environment and people uh that can trigger cravings and and we know that there's there's a whole field of of addiction research around this that um just sometimes seeing somebody who you normally do drugs with or being in the environment in which you do drugs in can trigger really strong craving responses and when they're in a clinic setting and they're in a in a different environment that they're not used to that's not associated with drug taking behavior you know it's easier for them i think to disconnect from from associating that and from triggering those kinds of cravings that are environmental cues uh, mm -hmm. whereas when they start to when they go home they're back in their old environments where they're very much used to those settings for drug taking and it it just gives them a different um experience and a different uh need for wanting to take a drug. So that, that's also a very important part of the, the whole, I guess, the vicious cycle of addiction mm -hmm. and why it's not as easy to just overcome as, as one would, who's not addicted would, would intuitively think it. I mean, it's, it's the logic kind of fall, falls apart. So I think we have to be um, mindful of the fact that uh, these are in different settings. And so what's, what's happening in a clinical trial can be very different outcomes in the real world because of the, the additional environmental factors that are involved and perhaps the stresses that they go through day to day that may trigger more opioid taking, uh, stress at work, stress in the family, stress mm -hmm. in relationships and that type of thing. So it is, um, it is quite, yeah. It's, it's and even in our environment, she was probably never been around so many drug dependent people in her life <laughs> than she was when she was in our unit. So she was saying people were talking about this, that, or the other. So one of the first studies we did with the buprenorphine in order to get inducted into their drug, which was a long acting depot, you had to, your craving scale had to decrease by so much percent. And you just, it was, we just couldn't get people there. So even in the unit there, even though they were, cows was low, they were still craving it. Because I do think they're still talking about it all the time. Same thing with nicotine, because people can smoke there. Some people start off smoking six cigarettes a day. By the time they're out, they're smoking a pack a day. You know, so we try to monitor that better too, because they just do that out of kind of boredom and the other people around them. So, so it's, they don't have the same outside stressors, but just being in a program in and of itself also creates other stressors. Plus, just knowledge about other substances, you know, that aren't. So we have to be careful, you know, about that when you introduce someone into a setting that's, un that's different for them mm -hmm. to try to make sure that we don't, we monitor that and uh, warn people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, and it's a, it's a very difficult uh, disorder to have to, to deal with. Uh, mm -hmm. It certainly affects so many individuals and families that, uh, well, we always wish the best for them. And I think the, the, it's promising that a lot of our subjects who come out uh, end up doing well uh, after they leave the studies. Um, but um, yeah, that's, I think, why really more research and more accessibility to effective drugs that can mitigate withdrawal, I think, are, are, and opioid use disorder, amongst other use disorders, are so important to continue developing in, in that, because I, we, I think we've noticed quite a, a, a lull in the development space for innovations around addictive disorder for, for the past decade or so. Uh, really mm -hmm. at the height of, of an opioid epidemic, it, it's, it's, you would think that there would be more um, yeah, you know, more more of a draw to to try and address this, but we are seeing some companies come forward with some more in, innovations in this space, and I I do hope that uh, we continue in that on that path to help these individuals because there's so many and the the day to day impact um, as you see from these this interview and from from the others that we've had and as you'll see in the series going forward for the interviews, uh, it has such a impact on on quality of life that uh, it really hopefully we will be able to address it in with more effective um, tools in the in the toolbox mm -hmm. I hope so
Thank you so much for joining and thank you to our audience. And please stay tuned. We will have more upcoming interviews with both uh, subjects who are physically dependent on drugs as well as the recreational drug users who use it sporadically. Uh, so stay tuned. Thank you for joining. <laughs>